time if we do that. I never do that to you on, on Communion Sunday. I would ask you, please, uh, to, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew 5, where we will move from the Beatitudes. I, I hesitate to move from the Beatitudes. I had such a good time with that. From the Beatitudes and the concept of God's desire for your happiness, actually, to the challenge before us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. That's our verse on the screen from before. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That last verse, 16, is going to occupy a lot of our attention. I have about three hours of information I want to share with you on this little four-verse section. Of course, we can't do that today. And I'm not going to do Matthew in four years. So I ask you to bring some concentration as we attend, concentrate our efforts here today. But verse 16 is the first command of our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first time he's issued an imperative, unless you want to say uh, rejoice and leap for joy or, or be, be, be extra joyful because your reward in heaven is great. But this is the first time he's given an ethical instruction that isn't a, a statement about the Beatitudes. Let your light shine before men. It's really important in its summary, in its summary role. And this is the tragedy of those who have dodged the Sermon on the Mount because of its abuses and say, well, it's really not for us because Jesus is talking to Israel. He certainly is talking to his disciples during the age of Israel, anticipating just on the cusp, waiting for the cross and the beginning of the church. Matthew's writing to the church. Jesus is speaking to Jewish disciples who are about to be the church. So when we dodge the Sermon on the Mount, we miss the instruction. See, I'm saying we shouldn't do this. We miss the instruction Jesus has for disciples, whether under the law or in Christ today with the Holy Spirit after Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so I think it's so really helpful to sink down and think about this instruction let your light shine before men is life-altering instruction. Let your light shine before men is marching orders for us that will, in its delightful simplicity, it will summarize our entire approach to life. And that's what instruction does. That's what God's commands do for us. They simplify so much because we have so many options and Jesus says, this is where you need to train your energy, your effort. Let your light shine before men. Well, before we dig into the, the nuts and bolts of how Jesus says what he says in the pen of Matthew, I want to remind you that um, the Beatitudes begin or end with verse 11. After he says, blessed are these categories of people, he changes his talk. 
Do you recall in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, right? These are these categories. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. See what I mean? Those are all categories. But verse 11 changes it a little bit. And we said, you know, this is better translated happy. The, the state of bliss is because of God's blessing for sure, but he's describing the state that you, you need to recognize you have. He says, happy are you. He doesn't define the category that you should occupy by these different descriptions. He then says, it's about you, his disciples that he's speaking to, and he personalizes it. And that is uh, something that you really don't miss if you read it carefully. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are you. Why? When they insult you. Do Christians believe that our circumstances determine our state of mind? We don't believe that. Because we're not masochists. Look at the ridiculous statement Jesus made. Now, the unbeliever, the unbeliever with his reasoning can do all kinds of things to this. Blessed are you when they insult you. See, Christians want to hurt. Blessed are you because you're suffering insult. That's not the reason we're blessed. The reason we're happy uh, uh, under insult there's a cause and effect relationship, but isn't if I hurt, then I'm happy, right? Masochism, I use that word. Do you know what that word means? Well, pastor, don't talk about that on Sunday. Masochism is where somebody likes to hurt. Some of you have an emotional masochism. You are happiest when you can be most miserable. The, the sobbing needs to give over to heaving, and then we're in bliss of misery. Some of you are like, don't talk about that anymore because that's really close to home. Others are confused. What am I even talking about? And you're just happy going, happy go lucky. Takes all kinds, doesn't it? We're not masochists. We're not happy that people are insulting us. We're happy that there is glory to God through our faithfulness under pressure of insult. Happy are you when they insult you and persecute and falsely say all kinds of wicked words about you. See, there's conflict because of me. Happy are you when you're suffering for my sake is what that means. And it still isn't because of the suffering. It's because of what happens as a consequence. It's Hebrews 12 thinking for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so it sat down at the right hand of the father. Rejoice and exult. Okay. This is the first command in the sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and exult. Kyreta and Angaliasa to rejoice, leap for joy or exult exceedingly because your reward is great in heaven. Why are you and I rejoicing under insult, persecution, being slandered? Why? Not because we like to suffer, but because our reward in heaven is great, because there's a huge differential there, that there's righteousness, okay, I'm doing the right thing, and there may be sacrificial righteousness, I'm doing the right thing under pressure, and then it becomes sacrificial because I'm being oppressed and offended for doing the right thing. And that's a big potential difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. And God's going to resolve that difference and glorify himself in greatly rewarding you in heaven. That's the idea. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you, you're in good company. You, that he's been talking about all along, the happy, because they mourn, because they are meek, because they hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when you're suffering for my sake. Please don't misunderstand me. 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples when they were under the Mosaic law, anticipating his fulfillment of the Mosaic law and then their responsibility to carry forth his message and take on his mission of revealing the Father through the world, which is our mission today, not under the Mosaic law. I know that seems complicated. I know we want to make it simple and cut and dried, but history is complicated. Let me simplify. If you're a disciple of our Savior, you need to listen carefully to what he's saying. If you're a disciple of our Savior, listen carefully to what he's saying, regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in, under the law or with the law fulfilled. We're not under the law. They were, but then they weren't because Jesus fulfilled it. Rejoice and exult because your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 13 has Jesus furthering that thing he changed to in verse 11 where he says, blessed are you or happy are you. And now he says, while we're talking about you, let's talk about what you are. I want my Savior not only to create me, not only to refine me, but I want to hear him define me. I want to know what he thinks I'm for, what I'm about, what I should be doing with myself. Because if I listen to it, I'll take on his attitude. If I'm careful to ask, what do you want? And then say, God and your spirit, help me give you what you want. Help me do what you are asking of me. Then I'll be what he wants me to be. Understand, you are not your own. You are not here for yourself. Every human being in the world is owned. Every human being in the world is owned. You are either in the slave market of sin, serving sin and lust, or you're freed from sin and you're serving Christ. And these are your positions. You're in your sin or you're in Christ. This is the nature of being a human being. No one is autonomous. No one is free in that sense of libertine freedom. Everyone is serving someone or something. You disciples of mine, he says, you're the salt of the earth. It's such a horror that this has been taken away from the church by some misguided theologians. You are here for a purpose. He doesn't say that you are the committee to build the kingdom here on earth. He didn't say you're the building materials of the kingdom. Go ahead and get working. He didn't say you're the architects of the kingdom that Jesus is going to come back and see if you liked it, if he likes what you did. He said you have a role here and it's the role that I'm assigning you. And so let Jesus define you. Let him specify his mission for you. You have a role and it is called salt here and light. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt should become tasteless, literally, literally, morino, if it should become foolish, it should become uh, where we get the word moron for fool, which, which the, the, the Greek scholars will tell you this means tasteless when you're talking about salt. There's a context in the discussions of the rabbis about this that antedates this, this verse. There, there's, there's a context going on. And there was a, there's a riddle, actually, can salt be tasteless? Well, sodium chloride cannot be. If it's sodium chloride, it can't lose its taste. If it's sea salt that has gypsum in it and the sodium chloride leaches out and you're left with gypsum fragments, well, that's white powder, but it's not salt. It's not tasteful anymore. And so there's a debate about what this means and how to do it. I'll tell you what I, what I, what I think, and I'll tell you how much I think it matters. Salt, there's three views. There are three views about this, and, and I don't know if I have a fourth. I don't know if mine's different, but the three views of the salt are that salt is preservative. Salt is how you will um, ferment 
vegetables, salt fermentation, um, and other things. And so you could preserve salt pork. Well, not in this culture, salt mutton or whatever. You're going to salt down some meat and you can preserve it that way. It's got that kind of chemical property that you can use to preserve. So the idea is that we're preservative in the culture, that his disciples have a preservative function. And a lot of theology gets extrapolated out of that idea. And it could be what he's talking about, but he doesn't really explicitly go there. The next view is that actually salt is what makes your food taste good. And, um, and just trust me, if, you, if you're wondering about that, I know that there's a health, somebody's going to say, oh, we can't have a lot of salt, and that's a bad thing in our culture and our diet and all that. And I'm, I'm not talking about making recommendations. I'm just saying, cook with no salt, add all the Mrs. Dash you want to it, we're going to struggle. It's going it's to be hard for us to go ahead and, and maybe that'd be a good diet. That, that's, that's the solution. Just take all the salt out of the diet. I'll probably lose a ton of weight. <laughs> no salt, no sugar. Um, and Lord, come soon, please. So if the salt, so, so, so the idea is that it's flavoring, and so you have a benefit in terms of, of adding seasoning to, to, to the world, that you're seasoning the world and making it you know, palatable or delightful or whatever, and, and there's a whole way to extrapolate that. And some have said, well, we're, we're both. We're, we're preservative and we're seasoning. Those are the three views. And I would say that since he doesn't elaborate on what he means by salt, since he doesn't elaborate and that you, you shouldn't extract a ton of theology out of that statement, but you should say that whether it's for flavoring or whether it's for preserve, preservation, the salt is an instrument used by the person using it for a purpose. It has a beneficial purpose to the, in this case, the world. You and I are supposed to benefit the world is definitely something we could all agree on with, without however we interpret this. See what I mean? Where's to be a, a, a flavorful benefit or a preservative benefit to the world. And what that means is that salt is not sitting there, either in your pre- preservative kit or in your seasoning kit. It's not there for itself. Uh-oh. This is the part that'll smash us all in the face with a shovel in our culture. You're not here for you. The salt isn't there for itself. It's somebody's using it for something else. Mm. I was going to try to be selfish, and then I came and heard a sermon, and I can't be selfish. And now I've got to say, well, God, use me to be the benefit that you want me to be. We're salt in the civilization that we find ourselves. We are not called to reform the society. You are not, by your works, going to make this country come back to itself. God may do that, and he may use you to do that, and it may be a preservative salt kind of thing. But I promise you, it will not be through our re-engineering of structures, of societal, governmental structures. The religious right isn't going to do it, as we've just discovered in the 30-year experiment of the religious right. Are we better off as a civilization now after that? No, the best you could say is that maybe they had some, they were standing on the break some of the decline of the civilization, maybe, or maybe they contributed, I don't know. But my point is that we have never anywhere in the scriptures been called to pretend like we're in the kingdom now and that we're functioning as kingdom uh, builders in the societal structures. Please hear me. The whole reconstructionist movement that we're going to take the, take the world for theocracy, it's not a biblical notion. Matthew, or, uh, Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19. There is a warfare event that you've got to have the king come and do this. 
right? Rev, Rev 1920. And so, well, why don't people think that way? Do Christians not read their Bible that way? Because they've been taught by their father, the Augustine, to disregard Revelation. They've been told that it's not sequential, chronological, historical prophecy. They've been told it's figurative, uh, cyclic imagery to say Jesus wins in the end. And so they lose any hope of predictive prophecy out of the prophets in Revelation. And then you have people talking heads say, well, the traditional view. You mean the Augustinian view. He didn't even read Hebrew. He had no hope of understanding the prophets in depth. And he adopted a bad, or a bad allegorical method to interpret. So I just... Beloved, we're not going to be salt and therefore fix it all. We're going to be a benefit. And the way you make disciples is not by holding a town hall meeting, handing out a, a, a clipboard with, with, uh, with printed sheets of instruction and fill in the blank pens and mandatory filling out of, of forms so that everybody knows that we serve Jesus. You are not going to do it by legislation or government. It's going to be the way you communicate to the individuals around you. Because just like you and me, they have to trust in Christ themselves. Salt, light, means that you have a disciple-making role in the, in the culture that you're in. And you don't want to be worthless. If the salt should become tasteless, then by what will it literally, will it be passive voice salted? How are you going to make it salt? That's impossible. And so why does he say that? Why does Jesus say these words? If you ask the question, why, of the text, uh-oh, it's 3D now. If you ask the question, why, why does he say, if it becomes salt, t- tasteless, how will it be salted again? Why does he say that? Salt, actual salt, can't be resalted. There is no, there is no um, once it's all dissolved, once the saltiness of sodium chloride is gone, the, the sodium chloride's gone, you don't have salt anymore. So that interpretation that it's gypsum left over from dead sea salt, I mean, maybe, maybe. Uh, But I think it's more of a riddle like the eye of the needle stuff, like the camel through the eye of the needle. I think his point is that there is no making salt salty if salt isn't salty. It's an absurdity. Salt that doesn't taste salty is absurd. Believers that are on our mission are absurd. That's what he's saying. I'm here for a role. I won't do my role. I have no, no role. I have no function. So I sit in the, in the cabinet and I don't season or I don't preserve, whichever. And so what are you here for? What's the point? Well, I've got salt, but the food doesn't taste good. I've got some salt in the cabinet. I'm, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. So what will we do? Well, let's pick something else. Well, what are you going to pick? Something that tastes salty. I know. Let's use salt. You're stuck. You have a function, you have a design, he's got a role for you, and if you don't do it, you are an absurdity, and the mission is a fail. And God will succeed without you, but he will succeed through those of you who understand this and disciple up and say, I'll be what he's calling me to be. I'll have the role he's calling me to have. Unto nothing, literally, this literally unto nothing, it's capable anymore. It can't do anything if it becomes tasteless except to be thrown out to be trampled on by men. Now, that's, that statement that he makes there, that the salt becomes worthless, is the historical archaeological thing that, okay, so they did make salt with an impure form using uh, uh, um, boiled dead sea salt that would boil down. And so there was sodium chloride in that, but there were some other minerals. And so the sodium chloride can dissolve, especially if it gets wet, and it can leach out, and then you're left with gypsum. So maybe that's what he means. You would, you would then, it's, it's useless for anything uh, in terms of pres- preservative or flavoring, so you just throw it out. It's a waste. 
But here, I, I just want you to understand the application is there whether he means preservative or, or, or any, whatever he's saying by the, the archaeological stuff, it's the same for you and me, that we were designed with a purpose and we're useless if we don't fulfill that purpose because we're not doing what we're designed for. And so how would you know you're not really salt, you're a human being with thinking and agency and responsibility. How are you going to do it? How are you going to know what it is you're supposed to be doing? Well, just listen to what Jesus tells you. Just listen to him. He tells you what you need to know. Oh, but that would imply that I have ears to hear. That would imply that I could reason with my brain the words that he's saying. That would imply that I have the agency to choose to agree and, and, and trust in what he's saying and, and therefore obey him with those, those faculties that God gave me. The, the, you're assuming way too much of humans that we can hear and reason and think and choose. No, Jesus is pretty clear. The mission is to teach, teach the nations to do all that I've commanded you. Keep all that I command. What, what does that mean? It's a disciple. It's a student of him. And so you got to listen to him. And so what I'm trying to, to, to bring out today in this verse, what one verse, 13, so far, what I'm trying to express is that you and I have a purpose and he thinks we're worthless if we don't fulfill it. I think it's pretty obvious. And when I say he thinks we're worthless, careful, careful about that. We're in a very therapeutic culture. We have inherent value because he made us. We have an inherent value that he made us new in Christ. That, that's not what I mean. I mean, functionally worthless. I mean, a perfectly serviceable jar of salt that never gets used. What's wrong with that salt? It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? It has agency and volition and it chooses not to. I can't get on mission. I'm not a pastor. Jesus never said, go, go ye pastors and get on mission. He said, go make disciples. Yes, you can. You can be what God wants you to be in the spiritual gift he's given you. You can be serious about his word and grow in the word so that you can maturely make choices about your responsibilities and encourage others with theirs. What do you mean encourage other people with their responsibilities? I mean Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Make disciples of all the nations by teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. By teaching them, all the people in the world, to keep, to obey, to, uh, to observe all that I commanded you, all the things whatsoever I told you to do. That's disciple making. Who here doesn't want to be a disciple of our Savior? See, look, everybody here, you've just committed. Y'all want to be disciples, great. You, again, he fronts the you, which is rare, are the light of the world. Salt and light, two illustrations. You are not physically salt and you are not physically light in the sense that he's saying this. Now, there is a sense we could talk in physics where that's matter, light, and stuff. Anyway, some of you like that idea of physics. But you are the light of the world, a city located atop a mountain. I know it says city set on a hill. That's more poetic. But Horaz is almost always a mountain. Uh, that's why I use the fortress il illustration. Cannot be hidden. You have a role. And you're supposed to shine. If, you're just, if you just turn the light on, it does its job. It's sort of passively successful. Have you ever been the light passively some of you are like, oh, you can't do anything passive. Yeah, you can. You can say There's, there are things I do and things I don't do, and I'm just not going to do that. You can shine the light by saying I'm not doing that. You're not saying you can't do it. You're not saying uh, 
Uh, in fact, this is the most important thing for peer pressure for young people. Your friends are in your life, understand, for you to help disciple them. That's their purpose in your life. They're not there for entertainment for you. They're not so you can feel connected to a group of people. That's not why you have friends. It's not. They're not there because you're supposed to figure out who you are, right? That's not the biblical notion of friends. Your friends, your peers are in your life so that you can be part of God's work in their lives. Oh, well, they don't think that way. I know. Of course they don't think that way. That's why you're there. No, they, would, they wouldn't like that. <laughs> right. You can passively shine the light of who God is by just saying, I'm not going to do that. Oh, you think you're better than us? I didn't say I think I'm better. This is what you say to that. I didn't say I'm better than you. I'm just not doing that. Why not? Oh, because we shouldn't do that. Why not? Well, let's get into it. But you could just say without any explanation, I'm not doing that. That's passive. That's passive light shine. You're not, you're not saying, okay, everybody, I'm going to throw a lasso around all of you and you're coming with me. We're not doing that. I love the leadership, okay? I love the idea. But just start with leading yourself. I am not doing this thing that you're asking me to do. That's Proverbs 1. It's good wisdom. And why would you not benefit from it? Because you're worried. You're afraid. You care what they think more than you care what God thinks. Your, your mind is set on the things of this world, not on things of God. And it's the nature of your culture, and you're going to have to make a choice. Okay, this is um, a picture of... Um, one of the fortresses in Austria, it's Hohenwerfen Castle. Hohenwerfen. Doesn't that sound great? It's about 40 miles outside of uh, Salzburg. And Austria has several fortresses, castles like this. I think these are fantastic. Does anybody know when about, don't look on your phone, Hohenwerfen Castle was built? Anybody have a guess about when that was? What, about when would this castle have been built? I'm assuming they upgraded it for electric. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Oh, how'd you know, Lou? Well, that's a 1075 to 1078 construction. They did it in three years. The new house outside, we'll probably do it in three years. Anyway, um, how, how, all pastors always bringing it back to the building. Hohenwerfen Castle is, a, I think it's very beautiful. They build these things up on these hills. And um, it's more than a, it's, well, in 2075, it'll be 1,000 years old. I think that's phenomenal. 1075. Inspiring people around the world with its beautiful architecture and awesome calf muscles for anybody that lives there. I've... Uh, Where'd it go? This one. I've been to this one. This is in uh, Salzburg. It's the Salzburg, uh, Hohen Salzburg Fortress. Anybody want to guess when this one was built? 1077. About the same time. Apparently there's a lot of building castles, uh, fortresses on hilltops in this area. That's an interesting history. I actually had a privilege of going there. Um, we, we went to hear a, a concert by children um, a strings concert of Mozart's Salzburg symphonies in Salzburg in the fortress. And what blew me away was when we got there, it was a bunch of little kids with violins and cellos. 
And it sounded like the CD. <laughs> it sounded like an actual Mozart symphony or concerto. It was amazing. So I guess, um, you know, kids really, I mean, kids can do it. But um, I love these ideas, these beautiful works of art up on these, up, up on these high, high hills. This is a picture, as I told the kids, this is a picture of you. You are the light of the world, and a city on a hill can't be hidden. What that means is that if you're just being what you're supposed to be, remember I said kind of passively, just be who you are, the light is going to shine. That is in Ephesians 5. Children of the light, just if you show up with the light shining, the darkness is going to be exposed, and that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Right away, the person, think about Isaiah with, with the Lord. He sees the Lord and he sees the differential and he's, oh, I'm ruined. You have two choices that you could make. You have one, one of two choices you could choose when you see your wickedness against the picture of righteousness. You can revolt and say, that righteousness isn't righteousness. And at least I'm, I'm, at least I'm not self-righteous or whatever you accuse the person of. Or you can say, I don't have that and I want it. But it, it is going to be a conflict by presenting the character of God to the world. You are introducing conflict into darkness. God, save us from self-righteousness. Save us from thinking that it is in us that this light is derived, that it comes from me. But also save us from fear that being accused of self-righteousness, I go along with wickedness. That's a challenge. In verse 15, he says, neither do they light a lamp and set it under a peck measure or a basket. A peck measure, this word uh, for a basket, let's see, is, um, oh, let me show you the English. They don't set it under a basket. Is this word, um, modios, modios. And um, this is probably uh, the kind of basket that measures about two gallons, about eight liters, eight Eight something liters, about two gallons. So you can imagine if you, the reason that's valuable to me is that I, I've got a picture of a gallon of milk. It's a dry measure gallon, but anyway, about the gallon size. And then that's how big the basket is that you're setting a little, little oil lamp under. So the light is shining out and that's how it does. You just light it and it shines. That's what it's supposed to do. And you set a basket over it and it, it well, hopefully it burns a hole in the basket, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're, you don't want to do this in a, a, a basket. You, you imagine all the little holes between the, um, between the weaving strokes in the basket that the light would shine through. Um, why would you try to stifle this? Hurry, blow it out. Hurry, don't let them see. But they put it on a lampstand where it's not just shining up from the ground, but now that light can radiate 360, well, in a globe of light coming out, right? Um, and it illuminates all those in the house. Anybody know what castle that is? I didn't either. That's Vartburg. Does it say Vartburg Castle? Oh, yeah. It sounds better in German. That's Vartburg. That's not Wartburg. You know, Wartburg. Um, this, anybody know why this is famous? About 1521, you know why? Yeah. Yeah, this was the hideout. This is the ultimate light in a basket. 1517, October 31st, 95 theses. Fast forward, April, 
April of, 20, or, or, of 1521. He is at the diet of worms. Oh man, worms. He's, at this, he's not eating worms, gummy worms or other. He's at the diet of worms and he's making his great defense. April of 1521. And uh, he says words that we can all get behind. He said a lot of words we can't agree with. But he said these words. Um, he said, where did my notes go? I need my notes back. He said, since your most serene majesty and your highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I'll give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to this council because it is, a, it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. So I can't agree with them because they don't agree with each other is one of the, one of the answers. I got to love this guy, Luther. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, we can reason it through too. I'll do theology with you is what that means. If I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into the subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That's the diet of worms. That's the, the way he concluded his remarks. And then if, immediately, like that pastor that gave a bad sermon, he shot out of the church or out of the, the council, got into a coach and drove away as quick as he could. Um, and, then, and then he was kidnapped by uh, friends of one of his benefactors. And they squirreled him away here in Varbar Castle for about a year, for 10 months. And do you know what he did while he was in this room? This was the room that he was working in, and there was a small uh, antechamber that was the bedroom off of it. And apparently this is the desk, and if it's not, it's a replica. I haven't been there yet. Y'all want to go to Wartburg Castle? Have some Wurst? I'd love to go hang out with y'all in Germany um, for a little while. Then we got to get back home. But, um, but this, is, uh, this is the room where he translated the New Testament into German. While under functional house arrest, being hidden from people that were going to kill him because he had been condemned by this council. And, um, and so I think it's neat how it all kind of came together. He made his c- confession. He got in the coach to head back to Wittenberg, and they kidnapped him. He's not responsible for that fact. They squirreled him away. I mean, he's like, I got to get back to my pulpit whether they're going to kill me or not. I'm sorry, but Brother Martin, you're going to go over here and translate the Bible. And they, they set him up, and he did his work, and then he put the Bible in their language just uh, not too long after the printing press had been invented. And so we have the Bible now because of this event. But I think this is an ultimate light in a basket. He's stuck in this castle. And, and he's hiding, and he's not preaching, but he is, isn't he? He's going to shine the light in a way that we are still benefiting from because we have the English Bible in our language. He didn't translate it in English. He put it in German. But when that caught on, they said, we, we common people are reading the Bible. That's why we're Bible readers now. It was not a thing before he did that, not a, not a popular thing in, in the European countries, that we would have home, our own Bible in our language at home and read it for ourselves. Whatever your circumstance, you can shine this light. In this way, your light is to shine before men. That's the command. Lampsato. This is the word where we get to shine. 
And it is a third-person imperative, which is how I've translated your light is to shine. Your Bible cleans that up for English reading and says, let your light shine before men. And here's why, and here's what really matters. You and I are supposed to represent Christ and shine the light of his truth in our lives, passively and actively, so that men may see our good deeds. So people can see your good deeds. I thought we were supposed to do that in secret. Well, think about it. Because in seeing your good deeds, they're to glorify your Father who's in heaven. It turns out that it's not about what I do so much as why. And why, why I do it will determine how I do it. This is a bright calling. Will you all sit for just a couple of ideas? The audience of these spoken and written words is the Lord's disciples, by way of summary. I don't expect you to write these things down. I just think it's a sequential reasoned argument, and we'll provide these references for you later if you want them. The audience is the, of the written words is the Lord's disciples. The audience of the spoken words is the Lord's disciples. The Matthew audience that's reading Matthew in the first century are believers in Christ who are wondering what happened with the kingdom. This is a Jewish Christian readership, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples when he spoke these things. Either way, it's disciples. Second, they were under the law when Jesus spoke and freed from its condemnation at the cross. Uh-oh, that's a mystery. I don't have time to mess with it. This is supposed to be its. Sorry. Thus, these men were under and then not under the law. We were born not under the law. They were born under the law, and then Jesus died for our sins on the cross and suffered the consequence of the law and, and abolished it and its, and its uh, strictures against us. And that's so much of what Paul says. And this is the resol resolution. They were disciples before, and they're disciples now. They were under and then not under the law. How can I say a post-cross, post-resurrection Christian is supposed to be a disciple? How can I say that? Because after the cross and resurrection, Jesus said, go make disciples. You with me? Paul doesn't use the word disciple. I know, but he is one, and he does make disciples. Third, the disciples underwent a change in association. The common thing before and after the cross was that Jesus was their paraclete. He was their teacher, their mentor. Now he sent the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Christ, and Christ is now in us, the hope of glory, by the virtue and presence of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. The Spirit of Christ enables us. So five, that association with Jesus defines their lives. Does anybody know what Philippians 1.21 says? Where that association before and after the cross, just of Jesus, is the life-defining association. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.21? For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So six, these, thus Jesus describes his disciples in terms of their design and purpose in this passage. Your salt and your light, you are for a purpose, and it isn't your own purpose. Please don't turn your life into an experiment to see if you can find out if these things are true. Please don't waste your life, young people. You have a lot of service that you could render to God with the years ahead of you. Don't please find this message later after a bunch of efforts wasting your time and your life on something less, like a career or a relationship. Those are not your purpose and function. Those are part of your life and how you will function. You can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and wife. You have to go after wealth. You have to go after a wife, most of you, men. But, but you don't serve these things. You serve God. Seventh, God made them for this purpose of his self-revelation. That's why you exist. 
Do you hear the radical tone in Jesus' idea here? You exist for God's self-disclosure. Name another reason for you to exist. Think of anything else that you could say is why I exist. And you're not, you're not tracking with what he's talking about when he says you are the salt, you are the light. You're here, you exist for the purpose of God's self-revelation. But I want to be famous. One of the recent uh, things that came out is this pop culture guy, this Matthew Perry passed away. Before he died, he had a, a testimony some, some weeks or whatever months before he died, he said he'd become a Christian or he had trusted in God. And before that, he said, you know, before he became famous, he prayed, God, make me famous. And it didn't go so well for a lot of reasons. Aren't we here for ourselves? Aren't we here to promote ourselves? These are really the two options. It's not about me and it's about him or it is about me. Those are, those are the two options. So eighth, the nature of this revelation is salt and light. God offers blessing to mankind from the storehouse of his infinite love and mercy. And when he says, I am distributing salt and light into this world through you, that gives you such an incredible sense of purpose. That tells you what you are. I'm salt and light. I, I have a purpose. And it is to be God's love to this world. It is to benefit those around me. And that's not the social gospel because of what he says when he says that you're supposed to shine your light so that others will glorify God. It's much more than just doing nice things for people. Therefore, the disciples are supposed to reflect God's benevolence. This is a message that runs through the entirety of Scripture. The book of Jonah is written because they're not forgiving. The parable of the prodigal son, he's not forgiving. He's not like his father in heaven. Take on God's attitude about the people around you that are headed for the lake of fire. So 10th, the salt and light, we benefit those around us. And 11th, the purpose of the light we bear is the revelation of God. That is its purpose. I want to get a little bit of credit. I want to get a little bit of, a little bit of glory for me though, right? No, you already have all the glory you'll ever get. And I'll tell you why. Because the only one who really matters already has you in mind. Fame of what the humans think about you is, is useless, the only person that matters is God, and he already thinks of you. He already knows you. He already cares about you. Are you going to add uh, humans to that in your entourage? <laughs> and it's not that God's in yours. You're in his. But he's intimately concerned with the details of your life. That's, that's your satisfaction. That's your joy. This manifestation of God is the continuation of our Savior's earthly ministry and is our singular purpose. I'm here to bear salt, I mean, to bear light. I'm here to be the salt that God wants me to be to benefit others. It's not about me. So 13th, the good deeds we do in verse 16 are for the glory of God in the eyes and hearts of those around us. The reason I do the good works in the sight of men is so that they can look at God. I don't do the good work so they look at me. I do the good work so they look at God. And so, oh, but you're just doing it to, to glorify yourself. That's a heart motivation issue, right? And God knows the heart and he knows why you do what you do. And you really have to be thoughtful about this. Jesus will correct the idea of good deeds for man's approval in Matthew 6. Thank you for your attention. We're almost done. Matthew 6 is when you do your good deeds to be seen by men so that they approve of it and they honor you for it. 
See, that's, it's almost the opposite message in Matthew 6. The unbelieving um, outhouse lawyer, I call it, the person that wants to argue and reason, you know, as though they're reasoning against God's word with God's instrument of reason. Um, they wanna, they'll, they'll say, well, Jesus says, do your good deeds before men in Matthew 5, but then he says, don't do good deeds so people will see them in Matthew 6. And the difference is gonna be motivation. Here he commands that we let the light shine so that men may see. In verse 5, five verse 16, we're to shine the light. In Matthew 6, he repeatedly says we're to do things in secret. Here he says, shine the light. There he says in secret. The difference is why. Why we do the thing that we do. Either to be seen and approved by men or bring glory to God when men see his works. Luther was a very insecure man in, in some ways. That, now, a very insecure. He wasn't necessarily characterized by total insecurity, but he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of psychological issues. He was by mo, no means near perfect. And many of us would probably not really want to spend a lot of personal time with him. I think I probably would have, but a lot of you probably wouldn't, and that's Okay. He had some horrible flaws. And actually, when the anti-Semitism starts rolling out of his mouth, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. But God used him marvelously. Why do you do what you do? For whose approval do you, are you serving? And lastly, thank you for your time. Motivation matters. It matters why you do the thing you do. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the heart before it's the hands. The heart produces the works of the hands. That's the design. Oh, look, he's such a good person. He's really serving God. But for what purpose? Watch yourself. For God's glory? Well, let's glorify God on because, because of that service and leave it there. God lays claim to all of it, to the works of your hands, through the, the attitude of your heart, and the glory that comes from that. When it's for God's glory, it fulfills your purpose. Beloved, we are made for eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts and we have ambitions and desires that go beyond anything that we're capable of in this life, in this limited frame. We all feel it. We feel it all the time. We achieve the pinnacle of human significance when God achieves his self-glorification through us. We fulfill our purpose when God is using us to his personal ends and he tells us what they are. And you can't do that apart from what he said. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for eternal life through your son. We've celebrated the gospel so much today, the person and work of Jesus. And we celebrate all the blessings that we have because of your grace today. We ask that you would uh, strengthen us to represent this message of salt and light in the world we live in. Glorify yourself in our conversations this week. Father, as we deal with the people around us and we're so used to them as just people in our lives um, that, that have various roles, help us remember our role of salt and light, of being a benefit and a revelation of you to those around us. Father, teach us to do that wisely with our words and even more wisely when we don't use words. Let us be men and women of integrity because of who you are, because we're reflecting your integrity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.